All right, we're going to study God's Word together, so I hope you got one of these with you, or you can turn it on or swipe to it, open up a Bible to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're in this series called Live Sent, and we're just walking through passage after passage in different places to see what does it look like for us to be faithful witnesses in the everyday rhythms of our lives. And so we've talked about that from a number of different angles, and this morning we're going to talk particularly about how do we as believers use our words? How do we have conversations with people who are somewhere along the spiritual journey, and we want to nudge them towards the hope that we have and the hope that we've discovered in Jesus Christ? How can we do that um, without it being creepy. There's a book written by Sam Chan some years back. He said, how to talk about Jesus without being that guy. Which, which I love the title. I haven't read the book. I've read snippets of it, but it's a great, it's a great concept, right? How do we do this and do it well? So we're going to look at John chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading uh, just briefly the first uh, couple of verses, starting in verse 35, and I'm just going to read three verses, and then we'll read more as we move along. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, that would be Andrew and John, the writer of the gospel, the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. Someone proclaims, Two people hear it, and two people start following Jesus. Right, so the, the goal, again, of the Live Sent series is to get at some of the practical aspects of what it means to live as faithful gospel witnesses in the regular rhythms of our daily lives. So each week, we're not just trying to think about why we should do this or, or what it means to do this or what it looks like, but the how of how to practice it, how to step more fully into it, how to put it on in our everyday lives. One of the things that I love about John's gospel that I think sets us up to succeed here this morning is that more than any of the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John lets you eavesdrop on Jesus having one-on-one -on -one conversations. So if you and I ask the question, how can I talk to people about Jesus? Well, we have the privilege of listening to Jesus talk to people about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus talked to people one-on-one -on -one about himself, about salvation, about who he is, about who they are, about redemption, right? So we hear, for example, as we move through the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus talk one-on-one -on -one with a guy named Nicodemus. That guy's a Pharisee, John chapter 3. Move on to John chapter 4. We see Jesus talking to a woman at a well, a woman from Samaria in John chapter 4. You fast forward a little bit, you hear Jesus talking to a man born blind in John chapter 9. That guy's just gotten kicked out of the church. What's Jesus going to say to him once he's gotten kicked out of the temple? Well, we get to eavesdrop on these one-on-one -on -one conversations where Jesus talks to people about Jesus. I have a friend um, who was raised in a... A horrific family situation. Uh, he was born overseas, ended up coming to the States, and uh, just had a, a terrible family life growing up. Won't go into all of that, but he, he, he grew up and he went to college eventually in New Orleans, and he got a degree in, uh, in history and English, double majored in history and English, became a history teacher uh, at a high school. And he said he didn't know Jesus from a hole in the wall. 
And uh, he said, he really, once he got into that school setting, he said, I found much to my surprise that the teachers at this particular school really didn't hang out very much. There wasn't a very welcoming kind of uh, teacher uh, culture. And so he said, but there was one guy who was very outgoing, very gracious, and drew me out in conversations, and we just really enjoyed each other's company. And he said he happened to lead the janitorial staff of the high school. And so he said, after... uh, after the school day was over, he said he had to begin, this man, this friend of his, had to begin doing all this work. So he said, we couldn't just stand there and chat. His work was just beginning and he was cleaning up the gym floor and all these things. So he said, I found myself, if you've ever seen the gym floor being push broom, there's big wide push broom. He said, I found myself walking next to the head of the custodial team as he was pushing the push broom and cleaning the gym floor. And he said, every day I would walk next to this guy who was cleaning the gym floor. And he said, I found out, he said, we would enjoy conversation. He'd ask me about my life. And he was kind of like a father figure that I never had. And he was pouring into me. And he said, then I found out he's a Christian. And he said, lo and behold, after many push broom conversations in the gym, he led me to faith in Jesus. And that friend of mine just turned 80 this week. And he's been pastoring for 40 years. All because he met a guy who was super welcoming, who took interest in his life, and who walked around and cleaned a gym floor and told him about Jesus. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It's what we see, those kinds of interactions happening in the Gospel of John. So how do we talk about Jesus with the people that we love? How do we talk to, about Jesus with different kinds of people? Should we just have a prepackaged uh, talk that we give no matter who it is that's standing in front of you or who it is that's sitting at your kitchen table. It's just kind of out comes the prepackaged gospel presentation. Is that the only way? Or can we talk to a seeker like they're a seeker and talk to a skeptic like they're a skeptic and talk to somebody who's experienced different things and meet them where they are and find points of contact, right? How specific and individualized can it be? And we see in the pages of the gospel of John, it's so radically individualized, it's so personalized to the situation of the person standing in front of them. And so that's what we're thinking about in this second year of Too Strong, what it means to go strong to our community as this second year is much about evangelism and hospitality and how to shine as lights in our city. So we're hopefully not just thinking about it. Last week you got a journal, hopefully we're journaling about it. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, I might later on. But uh, hopefully we're thinking and we're journaling and we're tracking and keeping this in front of us together. So two things that I think we can see beginning to take shape even in the first chapter of John's gospel. And the first point is ask and listen. So Jesus turns to Andrew and John in verse 38 and what's the first thing Jesus is recorded as saying in John's gospel? Answer is this. Jesus says, What are you looking for? Just notice with me, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John is not a statement, it's a question. It's a conversation opener. (laughs) That's the first, he leads with that, right? So we can already apply something. How do I get better at sharing my faith? Get better at asking questions. Open-ended question, it's taking interest in people. Jesus asked, in the Gospels alone, we see Jesus asking over 300 questions. Here's a few of them, just a sampling. Who do people say that I am in Mark 8? Why are you so afraid in Matthew 8? 
Why do you call me good? Luke 18. Which one was a good neighbor in Luke chapter 10? What do you want me to do for you in Mark chapter 10, right? This is just the sampling, but Jesus is always, he's getting people thinking, he's pulling them into the conversation, he's getting audience participation from the person right in front of him, right? You you think about how Jesus uses questions to move toward people, and Jesus uses questions to move people toward him. Questions are people movers. It's like that track in the airport. You stand on it and it pulls you somewhere, right? Jesus used questions to move people. He's moving toward them and they're moving toward him. And you know where he got this? He got it from God the Father. God, you go all the way back to the opening pages of the Bible in the book of Genesis and something goes way wrong, something goes sideways. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. And what's the first thing God says? Adam, where are you? He's, he's asking an open-ended question. He's saying, Adam, move toward me. <laughs> Adam, uh, you're in the bushes. He knows the answer, right? It's not like he literally is like, I, I, don't, I don't know where you are. You know, make a sound. You know, that, that's not what's going on. He knows where Adam is. He's giving Adam a chance to move. Move in my direction. He's asking a question to move him. You think about, think about people who make you feel loved. Odds are, among other things, these are people who ask good questions. These are people who are good, active listeners. They take real and genuine interest in your life. Author David Augsburger wrote an important book back in the 1980s. It's still a classic, and he wrote these words in it. Being heard is so close to being loved that most people cannot tell the difference. Say that again. Being heard is so close to being loved that most people cannot tell the difference. So obviously the main thing that we're talking about here in this Live Sent series is, is not kind of cold call, one-up evangelism where you walk up to a total stranger and just begin a conversation. That, that certainly has value. The Lord will use you and maybe already has used you in some of those ways. What we're mainly focusing on is relational evangelism. You've got people in your life already. You've got family members in your house. Some of them don't know Jesus or don't follow Jesus or have questions about Jesus. You've got coworkers you work around. You've got hobbies and people you're rubbing shoulders with on a regular basis who don't know Jesus. And so how do we engage them in this conversation? So again, Sam Chan, I referenced his book a little bit earlier. Sam Chan says, if we love people really well and if we use our words wisely as we develop good and meaningful friendships with them, he said, we get invited to become kind of the de facto chaplain for spiritual things in their lives. Some of you might have experienced this, or maybe, maybe before you came to faith in Christ, you had somebody who you went to, you knew like they were the spiritual person, they were the Jesus person, and there was something going on in your life, and you would just say, hey, listen, man, would you just pray for me? There's something happening in my marriage. I'm not going into all the details, but I just can't figure this out. And could, could you give me some, some wisdom, some input? If nothing else, could you just pray? for things that are happening in our home. You become kind of their, uh, their Wi-Fi to the sacred. You become their connection to the sacred. I'll talk a little bit more about that next week when we talk about gospel homes and hospitality and the good things that happen across the table. When, uh, when I was a kid, I grew up as a kid in New Orleans, and our neighbors across the street, uh, their family ran an appliance store. And uh, matter of fact, the 
the man's brother would sometimes be on one of the local commercials. And I just thought it was the biggest thing ever. It was the cheesiest commercial in the world. But uh, I just thought, they live across the street, right? So uh, there's this guy, they did furniture and appliance stuff. Well, they weren't Christians, but I would find out later on that they, they asked and peppered my dad with a bunch of questions about spiritual things over the years as we were neighbors. And they asked him to pray for things when their kids were sick or when something was going on at the workplace or when they were having troubled times financially. And they would ask him to pray for things in their lives and in their family. One, one, one thing that I do remember, I wasn't aware of that until later, my mom told me later, but uh, one Christmas I'll never forget, we heard the doorbell ring. It was Christmas Eve, heard the doorbell ring, go to the front door and uh, open the front door and, and there he is, there's the neighbor. And, and he's, got a, he's got a big bottle of wine and he gives it to my dad and he just says, I just wanna thank you for you know, the way you've cared for my family and these kinds of things. And my dad was just profusely thankful to him and closed the door and as a teetotaler who's trying to raise teetotalers, he poured it all down the toilet. Uh, which some of you are like, no, <laughs> right? But, uh, but that was us, right? I just remember seeing my dad pour that down the toilet. I'm like, oh, of course, that's not a surprise. I, I knew he was gonna do that, right? But right after dad died, my dad died when I was 12 years old. Right after dad died, when all these people showed up at the funeral, we found out that dad had become basically the unofficial chaplain of the neighborhood. And that he had poured into the Tiliakas family and the Campos and next door on both the Ruyers on both sides. So let's ask and listen. So how do we ask and listen? Here's some, here's some questions that allow us to explore deeper things with people. It's not perfect questions, but they're questions, right? What's your spiritual background? Do you ever think about spiritual things? What role would you say God plays in your life? Or maybe if you're able to take it further, maybe the person's curious and conversation's going well and you want to take it further. What do you think it means to be a Christian? What's your impression of what Christians believe or, or practice? I asked a friend recently, she's, um, she's by her own profession a spiritual person and doesn't mind talking about spiritual things. So we've had a number of conversations. And I asked her recently, I said, can I throw three kind of spiritual concepts for us to talk about right here and you tell me which one you feel most comfortable talking about and which one you're interested in but uh, don't know much about. And so I threw these out there and she got really excited about one of them. Next thing you know, we're, we're talking through uh, question number one. And then when I came back and talked to her the next week, we met up again. And she said, could you remind me what the other two questions were and where can I go to find out answers? I was like, okay, well, keep cutting my hair, uh, right? And we'll, we'll have opportunities to talk about these things together. So ask and listen. And number two, point number two, chat your faith. Chat your faith. So we'll develop this under a couple of points. Um, and the first is this, evangelistic approaches. So think with me about chatting your faith and think about the diverse evangelistic approaches that are viable. Approach number one to evangelism that we see all over the New Testament is preaching. All right, so we see 
the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. We just studied the book of Acts. Multiple occasions, they would go out into the synagogue or they would go out into the open air and they would proclaim the gospel. Some of you have maybe been to a Billy Graham event where he would go open air, you'd have multiple thousands of people and he would just preach Jesus and people would come to faith in Jesus. Matter of fact, the apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, God saved you through the foolishness of the message preached, not conversed, not shared, proclaimed, heralded, preached. So here's a couple of instances of it. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist. That's him preaching right here in our passage. Peter, uh, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up and raised his voice and proclaimed to them. And then he delivers this sermon. And then it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And there's the passage I was just referring to. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is just by the way, and I'm not going to camp out here and spend much time, but this by the way is one of the many reasons we shouldn't undervalue the simple practice of inviting someone to church where Jesus is preached, where Jesus shines out from the pages of every, every page in scripture. So there's a, a story about the great prince of preachers from the 1800s, his name, British preacher named Charles Spurgeon. And uh, he was set to preach in a brand new venue on the next morning. And so he wanted to get a feel for the acoustics of the room. You know, they didn't have sound equipment and that kind of thing. He wanted to get a feel for the acoustics. And would, it, would people be able to hear if they were packed into the galleys outside of the main hall, right? So he was just kind of testing that out. Again, brand new venue. There was still a painter, apparently, in the lobby who was still putting the finishing touches on the venue before the event the next morning. And so what Spurgeon purportedly did to get a feel for the acoustics is he stood behind the pulpit of that church and he quoted one of his favorite verses. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away. King James Version, probably. They didn't have the CSB back then, so... He said, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And he bellows that out. And again, the guy painting in the lobby heard that 13-word sound check and trusted in Jesus. What's that tell you about the guy in the lobby? He was ready, <laughs> right? He was ready. Apparently, he, he knew he had sin that needed taking away. He just needed to know where to take it. And, and Spurgeon announced during the sound check, here's where you take it. Take it to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He takes your sin away. He was already there. He just needed to know that last truth, right? The story of the painter, I think, is a really good reminder to us. Um, think about it this way. So if someone's spiritual journey relative to Jesus or in relation to Jesus, think about it as, uh, as the alphabet. So A to Z. And, and everybody is somewhere on that spectrum. Let's say Z is the painter. Just tell me his name and I'm ready to trust in him. I already feel conviction for my sin and so forth. I'm ready to just hear the answer, right? So some people that you know are at letter A. And so odds are there's gonna be a number of conversations loving interactions, people who take interest in their lives, people who adorn the gospel by the way they live, and that's going to, by God's grace, move them along the spiritual journey, moving ever closer to arriving at trusting in Jesus. Again, our friend painting in the lobby was at the letter Z. He was right there and ready. So 
just, just a quick poll. How many of you followers of Jesus here this morning, how many of you moved from A to Z over a period that seemed like overnight? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'll ask the next one, but I think I know <laughs> it's going to be the bigger number. So how many of you, it, it was like a, a multiple stages across months or years? Wow. Wonderful. So it leads us to approach number two. Because often this is what Jesus uses to bring someone along toward himself. Approach number two is conversations and relationships. Conversations and relationships. So look down at verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So he said, what are you looking for? Very next verse, they said, where are you staying? And Jesus says, I love this, come and see. That, actually that phrase is gonna get used multiple times throughout John's gospel. Come and see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. Uh, By the way, again, we'll talk about this next week. Jesus is the first person in the gospel of John to practice hospitality. They ask where he's staying and he says, I'll show you. Come with me. I'll show you where I'm staying. And they stayed with him that day. So so presumably enjoyed a meal together and conversation together all day long. Right, so these guys are moving quickly from A to Z. How do we know? Well, just keep reading. Verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. So he heard John the Baptist and followed Jesus. Heard John the Baptist say, behold the Lamb of God. He followed Jesus. Goes on to say, he first found, note that word, his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. Isn't it it awesome just to look at that passage and see how people who found Jesus immediately start finding others. (laughs) He finds Jesus, he starts finding others. He comes to Jesus, he starts bringing others to Jesus, and he just starts right at home. He starts with the guy who grew up sleeping on the top bunk, Peter. He just tells his own family member, he says, I need you to come with me. I've just met the most compelling man I've ever met before. I need you to come and see it, right? And it goes on, it continues. You continue to see this thing develop. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He, Jesus, found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So don't miss it. Let's kind of do all the math here together at once. John preaches. There's one version of how the gospel gets out, proclamation. John preaches Jesus. Andrew follows Jesus. Andrew finds Peter, brings Peter to Jesus. Jesus finds Philip. This is kind of the direct approach. Right, this is the, taking the middleman out. Jesus goes directly to the person. This is sort of like there's m- multiple stories. When I asked you how many of you came to Jesus almost overnight, it was like an instantaneous kind of conversion story. And there are stories like that. Aurelius Augustine, for example, uh, he, he stumbles on an open Bible and he just feels led to walk over there and grab that Bible and he picks it up and he just flips it open to whatever page 
and the page happens to be a verse in Romans chapter 13 that targets the exact struggle in Augustine's life. Augustine said, I read that verse, the first verse my eyes fell on, and I trusted in Jesus. So that's kind of the direct approach. That's what Jesus does this, and he goes and finds Philip, but then Philip finds Nathanael and says, we found the one Moses was writing about. So again, you see this pattern here. God People find God, and God turns the found into the finders. He's sending out these finders. That's how we got here, by the way. We're downstream of centuries of people finding Jesus and then coming and finding us and finding our great-grandparents and finding others who would, who would then share the gospel with people leading to the moment where we find ourselves here this morning. Again, don't miss that Andrew starts with his own brother Peter so often the finding and the evangelism starts at home, right? My, um, my grandparents were first-generation believers in our family. And they came to faith, and then they taught it to their two daughters, my mom and my Aunt Becky. And my mom and my dad raised three kids, and we love Jesus. And my Aunt Becky raised kids, and they love Jesus. This is so often how it goes, we find Jesus in the home. We find him at the kitchen table. We, 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 we hear the gospel. We hear the good news. It's compelling to us. You, you might say, I'm a believer and I'm not from a godly family. You're the new link. God has broken ground. <laughs> there's, there's a new start that can begin and it begins with you. Praise God. What could happen next? Exciting things are afoot. So with Nathaniel and Peter and Nicodemus, it's interesting, you, if you go and read those conversations, we don't have time to do that, but if you go and read those conversations, Jesus is so direct with these three people, it almost feels abrasive, right? He, so Simon, I mean, his first interaction with Simon, he's like, they call you Simon, we're calling you Peter now, right? It's, it'd be like if I walked up and said, Matt, and he's like, ah, we're gonna go with Frank. That's kind of a, it's kind of, I'm already on my back foot from the word go, right? Well, Jesus, sometimes he shocked people with things that you just didn't expect him to say. Sometimes he goes direct with people, and I think he's contextualizing. I think he knows the person standing in front of them, and he knows, you appreciate this approach. He says to Nathaniel, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he's like, okay, I know how I can be with this guy, right? I can be very direct with Nathaniel. I know a pastor named Eric uh, who pastors in the D.C. area. And Eric said uh, when he became a new believer, he said, I was mentored by a guy who just loved sharing the gospel. And he was so contagious as a Christian. He was so joyful in his faith. And he loved to tell people about Jesus. And, uh, and he said, well, we were in college together. And this mentor was a little bit older than me in college. And he said, we heard that there was a group of people on our campus and they kind of all wore black, and, uh, and there was rumors that they would have seances when they were together. So everybody kind of had the rumors where these are just kind of a scary group of people, all right? And so the friend says to Eric, let's go crash their party. And he says, we, they heard that there was a party and you could see stuff pinned up around campus. He's like, let's go crash their party. So he shows up, they buy all these pizzas. They've got like, you know, 10 pizzas or whatever. So they, they walk in, they literally walk in the front door and Eric said, my friend says, we've got free pizza. And the first response of somebody who turns around dressed all in black and says, I will eat your soul. And Eric said, my eyes got this big. And he said, I looked at my friend and my friend just smiled and said, 
well, don't fill up on soul because we got all this pizza. (laughs) You see here in John 1, one person discovers who Jesus is and now they gotta go tell everybody else. I gotta go find somebody else, right? Apart from behold the Lamb of God, which is proclamation style, apart from that, everything else happening here seems to be conversation style, much like the rest of John's gospel, one-on-one interactions, evangelistic approaches, second, essential truths. So Christian author uh, Randy Newman, he tells a story about a survey that he got to be a part of uh, some years back. He said a group of 100 Christians, and he was included in the 100, invited four non-Christians in a certain age group so that they could learn things about that generation. He said invited four non-Christians aged 20 to 25 to be on a panel in front of the 100 Christians. So the 100 Christians are in the crowd, panels up front, and said, would you... One, we'll compensate you. Uh, and, and two, it won't last more than 60 minutes. And three, we promise not to try to convert you. We're trying to learn something. So would you be willing, if we just asked open-ended questions, would you be willing to answer so we can learn things about you? And so someone from the Christians would, they agreed to do this, and so someone from the Christians would pose a question and then the people on the panel would talk. And they heard several things from the panelists that talked about barriers to them not becoming Christians. They said things, for example, all religions are the same. They said the church really isn't needed. People are doing good things everywhere without the church, that kind of thing. Um, And the Christians were just taking it in. They were just really good listeners and time was almost up. The 60 minutes was almost spent. And one of the Christians then uh, asked the question and said, do you have any questions for us? Didn't seem that Christians were thinking of any more questions. And so he just said, do you have any questions for us? And much to their surprise and much to Newman's surprise, he said one of the more vocal panelists just said, yeah, tell us what you believe. So if you were in the crowd and that question were put to you, what would you have said to these non-Christians who've just shared their perspective? How would you share yours? What are the core truths that we're praying that we'll have an opportunity to share with people? Rico Tice in his great book, Honest Evangelism, he puts it under three words, identity, mission, and call. Identity, mission, and call. Identity, who is Jesus? I mean, now we are right at the core. Who is Jesus? Mission, why did Jesus come? Call, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You can't become a Christian without hearing the answer to these three questions. You gotta get there. There's all kinds of other things we can talk about in spiritual conversations, but if someone's going to become a follower of Jesus, they've gotta know and hear what these things mean. So who is Jesus' identity? Answer, read through John's gospel. He's the eternal son of God. He's the incarnate Lord. He's the savior. He's the king. He has the power to heal. He has the power to save and forgive sins. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to make all things new. He's God in the flesh. He, he, he comes in order to save us from our sins and he returns in order to judge, right? So who is he? 
He's God. He's the son of God. Why did he come? He came because we sinned against a holy God and our sins deserve death. Our sins deserve judgment. And Jesus comes to die in our place as our substitute to take our penalty on himself so that everybody who trusts in him can be forgiven of our sins because he bore them in our place. He took our guilt and he took our punishment. It's a huge answer to the question about mission. And then call. What does it mean to follow him? It means repenting and believing. It means turning from self-rule. It means I don't run my life anymore. I want you to run my life. I ran it into the ground. You take it somewhere better. I'm trusting in you. I'm not trusting in myself. So it means trusting him. It means believing in him. It means trusting the word of God. It means worshiping as our king. It means living by his promises and obeying his commands. And so these, this is what clarifies the very core of the Christian faith is right here, identity, mission, call. In verse 29, John the Baptist gets at both identity and mission in one sentence. Behold, who is he? The Lamb of God. Why did he come? To take away the sins of the world, right? In one sentence, he gets so much done and he would have obviously unpacked it. I don't think that sermon was literally just those words. There was more that was said who he is and why he came. In the Gospel of John, we listen to Jesus tell people who Jesus is, why he came. The Son of Man, Mark 10, 45, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's you overhearing Jesus tell people his mission. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. That's Jesus telling people why he came, what it means to follow him. And yet, it's not this prepackaged, stale, and he just comes and says, you know, I've got to do the thing. I have to say this, and then I have to say it, obviously the same exact thing with you, the same exact thing with you. In John 3, so I referred earlier to these three conversations Jesus has. In John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Why? Because Nicodemus was an Old Testament scholar. Jesus says, Nick, I know you've read Ezekiel. Come on. I'm not dropping some new concept here. Right, so Jesus, he knows who he's talking to. And so he knows I can go there with him in a unique way. It's not the same thing that he does in John chapter four. In John chapter four, he doesn't start with theology and Old Testament history. He talks about water. Why? Because the woman standing in front of him, they're standing at a well. She's thirsty. She's here for a reason. She says, what if I told you about water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again? You keep moving forward. John chapter nine, Jesus tells a blind man what? I'm the light of the world. Notice how he's literally situating the gospel to the person standing in front of him. He doesn't say, I'm the light of the world to the thirsty woman. And he doesn't say, I'm living water to the blind man. He says to the blind man, I'm the light. And he says to the thirsty woman, I'm the water. Isn't that beautiful? He's listening. He's taking interest. He's noticing the person standing in front of him and he's delivering the message right there. His self-proclamation is addressed to the specific condition of the person standing in front of him. C.S. Lewis was was an agnostic and he was pretty loud about it and then he became a brilliant defender of the faith and he loved to talk about the truth and talk about Jesus and talk about theology. He also engaged um, people's imaginations and he, he sometimes didn't just talk to the mind but he sometimes talked to the desire. He, he talked about this as sneaking past the watchful dragons uh, and he would talk about what makes you tick. He would get underneath it all at the volitional center of the human and he would create word pictures 
so that you could feel something of what it would be like for you to become a Christian. Here's some of his main chief word pictures. In one place he said, becoming a Christian is like a rebel laying down his weapons. To another he said, it's like a statue becoming a real person. It's like a compass needle swinging north. Right? All these word pictures deliver something different, right? It's like falling at someone's feet. It's like putting yourself into someone's hands. It's like coming home after a long voyage, right? Depending on where you are in your story and where you are in A to Z, these different metaphors might grip you in different ways. It was his way of letting the true story of the world connect not only with the mind, but with the desires. So, so that college panel, they asked the question, tell us what you believe, and if you're wondering what they said, here's how that went down. One of the moderators stood up and said, broke the awkward silence with a joke. Now, wait a minute, that's not part of the deal. We ask you the questions. The laughter was polite but did nothing to dismiss the question. He continued, well, it wasn't our purpose to invite you here to preach to you. So we want to be sure not to violate the trust you've given us. We're really thankful for your honest answers. You've helped us a lot. And since you asked us what we believe, I guess I'll say a few things and then allow you four to follow up with any of us individually if you'd like. How would that be? And everyone liked the suggestion. Newman goes on to say, I wish I had had a tape recorder for what followed. I might not have the words exactly right, but I do remember being impressed with the simplicity and eloquence of the gospel statement that followed. What we believe could be called mere Christianity, our spokesman began the kind of things on which the Christian church has agreed for centuries. We believe that there is a God and that he's made himself known to us so we can have a personal relationship with him, one that would help us in this life and one that would last forever in heaven. We also realize that we've all fallen short of any decent standard of goodness. In other words, we've all got some sin in us that's messed up a lot of things, friendships, consciences, relationship with God, things like that. We believe that Jesus is the answer for our problems. He's not only taught us lessons on how to live so we don't have these problems, but he also died on the cross to take away the penalty that we deserved for the problems we've created. Each of us has come to the point where we follow him every day of our lives. And Newman took away from that the striking simplicity he wasn't using heavily loaded theological terms of propitiation that would have been lost on the people standing in front of him. He brought it right to where their understanding is. So, Brook Hills, a few things for us to think about on our way out. This is application. So, just I'm going to give you a category of one talent conversations versus five talent conversations. So I'm borrowing from the parable of the talents that Jesus uses where the idea is basically steward what you're given even if it's just a little. That's the kernel idea. A one-talent conversation, for example, is where you discern this really isn't a day that I'm getting very far. I'm not gonna push the issue. Maybe your friend in front of you, non-believer, is really struggling and you've got some hope to offer but you sense that the need for this moment is just to be present with them right now. That's a one-talent conversation. You'll have opportunities for more. You don't have to make everything happen today. You're not pushing the issue. Or maybe you've asked a question about spiritual things and they're not wanting to go there. It's a one-talent conversation. 
It's okay. We're talking about relationship evangelism. You'll see them tomorrow, right? Or you'll see them in the regular rhythms of your life. There's more opportunities to pray for a more than one talent conversation. So five talent moments, right? That's where there's interest and there's curiosity and there's exchange, there's dialogue, there's thoughts being traded back and forth, right? In these five talent conversations, we're able to weave threads of the gospel. We're talking about identity. We're talking about mission and call and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what it means to follow him, what Christian, what it means to become a Christian. So discern the difference between a one talent and a five talent moment. If we study how the gospel spread around the world, it's most part, it's ordinary people having ordinary conversations about the extraordinary message of Jesus. I'll say that again. It's ordinary people having ordinary conversations about the extraordinary message of Jesus. So it's as ordinary, for example, it's as ordinary as a guy saying to his neighbor, hey, do you want to come over to our house? Because we're going to have a Bible study. And maybe much to your surprise, they say, yes. That was what happened with my wife. She was originally not raised in a Christian home. Her mom came to faith. Her mom shared the gospel and brought her husband to church. And Mr. Pete came to faith. And Paula wasn't still, she wasn't seeing it. And she was in college and she was running from God. And then her mom one day just invites her to come to church. And Paula said, Much to mom's surprise and much to my own surprise, I found the word yes came out of my mouth. It's ordinary. Or it's a woman saying to her coworker, we're gonna have this celebration of Easter, we're gonna play all sorts of games, we're gonna hide Easter eggs in the backyard, maybe you'll wanna come over, we can have dinner, we can have dessert, and then after, we're gonna talk a little while about what Easter means to us. It's not flashy, It's ordinary, but that's the way the gospel got to us, to you and me. It's it's less like proclaiming and more like conversing. It's less like preaching and more like chatting your faith. All right, and the second one is this, the writing prompt. So how many of you uh, received the journal last week that we were handing out? Hands up. Okay, so some didn't, so we've got those available. If you received uh, the journal, and I gave you a writing prompt uh, last week, so with every head bowed and every eye closed, uh, let's, I'm just joking. Uh, if you didn't fulfill the writing prompt last week, let's just start this. We got a fresh start. Jesus forgives. It's a beautiful thing. The gospel's wonderful, right? <laughs> so here's the new writing prompt for this week, and then I'll be done. When I think about and this is a person that you're praying for that you want to share your faith with. When I think about name, the aspect of Jesus' identity that might initially connect with this person is his fill-in-the-blank, his ability to calm storms, his willingness to forgive sins, his love for his friends, his mercy to the needy, whatever it might be, fill in that blank All the while, week after week, as we look at this from one angle after another, I hope we're continuing to pray where Pastor Dennis encouraged us to pray for B-O-W, right? Bow, boldness, opportunities, and wisdom. 